Good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to see you here. Thank you for being here with us this morning. We're continuing this morning in our study in the book of Acts. We took a little break last week. If you were here, you'll know. If you weren't, you can go online and find out what we talked about while you were away. But we're continuing that study this morning. And if you get our e-newsletter or if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that the title of this sermon series is Unleashed to Change the World. You don't really change the world by being passive. You change the world by being a part of a a movement. That's really what we're seeing in the book of Acts. And I just thought it was worth pointing out this morning. Earlier, at the beginning of the summer, we highlighted four separate trips, four separate missions trips that were going out. And the fourth of those four goes out tonight at like midnight. I think technically it's tomorrow. But our high schoolers are headed to Nicaragua And I see some people that are headed out there tonight. So good to see you here. Just want to remind you, we still have people from our church in the Philippines. We've sent a team to India. We sent our high schoolers to the beaches of Southern California to share the gospel and learn how to do that. Now we have a team going to Nicaragua. They will be there for a little over a week to share the gospel. We are unleashing our own people to change the world. That's the idea through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you've been with us through this study at all, you're going to have heard us summarize the book of Acts in the following way. That the book of Acts is about a group of ordinary people with an irresistible message. That message is the gospel. And those ordinary people are doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. That they're people, it's the story of people who are pursuing the mission of God. The mission of God is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus after his death and resurrection. It's the story of a group of people whose lives will never be the same because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done. And we're now headed into the final narrative of the book of Acts. We're kind of headed into the end of Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. Does anybody want to guess how long it's been now in our study since Paul converted to now where we are this morning in chapter 21. It's only 12 chapters. It's only taken us a couple of months. Anybody have any idea how much time has passed in those 12 chapters? About about 20 years. That's a great guess. I don't know if that was a guess or if you know. 25 to 30 years it has been since Paul's conversion. That's a long time. We've covered it pretty quickly, but that's a long time. And a lot has taken place over those 25 years or 30 years. God has done a lot in the life of Paul. God has done a lot through Paul. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to see kind of the end of Paul's journey, the end of Paul's ministry. There is a lot for us to cover this morning in the chapter that we're looking at. So we're just going to get right into the word. And before we do that, I'm just going to ask if you'd pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're going to open your word this morning. And I just just want to ask that you would speak to us through your word. As we read it this morning, we thank you, Lord, that we have it. We thank you that in it we, we understand who you are and what you're like. We thank you that we get to watch those that have gone before us and learn from them and see their example. Lord, we pray that we would recognize the value of what we have in relationship with you. And this morning, Lord, would you allow your words to sink into our hearts that we would be changed forever by the story of the gospel, that it would change who we are. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 21. 
If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have some here for you. They're in the baskets on the aisles here. You are welcome to get up and grab one. If you want one, just you can raise your hand. We'll pass one down to you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, whether you get it now or later, I would just encourage you, these are here for you, so take it home with you if you'd like to keep it. If you're using our Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 930, Acts chapter 21. Our passage this morning covers a lot of ground. We're going to try and get through a lot this morning, and there's so much in here that we can take away, and we don't really have time to focus on all of it. So let me just give you a few things to look for as we read through this passage in Acts. I just want, to, want you to focus on a few things and look for them as we read through it, because there's a lot here. The first thing I want you to look for is look at the church. I want you to notice the church. I want you to notice where it is. I want you to notice how they respond. The second thing I want you to look for this morning is to look at the people that we see in the story of chapter 21. I want you to look for names of people that you recognize from our study in Acts. We're well into it now, and there are going to be some old friends that come up in this narrative this morning. And the last thing I want you to look at is I want you to look at Paul. I want you to just consider Paul and consider what it's like to be Paul this morning. Consider the cost for Paul of following Jesus and what that looks like for him. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 21 this morning. Would you read with me? And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. The first little section here, I want you to look at the church. Our chapter starts with this phrase, and when we had parted from them. Do you remember what we're talking about? It's like we picked up right in the middle of a story. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, John walked us through the last half of chapter 20 when Paul is leaving Ephesus. Here's a place where Paul has done significant ministry. This is a place where Paul has spent many years of his life, and now he's leaving And if you remember when he leaves, they all kneel down together and pray. And Luke puts it this way. He says, there was much weeping on the part of all. They were all very, very sad. They were mourning Paul's leaving for a couple of reasons. One, because they had significant relationship. But two, because Paul had said, I'm never going to see you again. Which is a hard way to leave somebody that you love and care about. And so they kneel down and they pray and they cry together and they hug. And then Paul leaves. And I think we can relate to that because we understand what it means to have a significant friendship, a significant relationship with someone. I think we can understand for those of us who are followers of Christ, the kind of relationship or connection that we feel with the one who brought us to Christ, the one who introduced us to Jesus. That person, we have a special kind of relationship with them. I think we can relate to someone who has the kind of relationship where they build us up in our faith 
Someone that's been significant in our walk with the Lord. And if you've ever had someone like that in your life and then they've left and moved on, you understand the pain of that and the sadness of that, of missing that relationship. So we get that. But that's not what happens when they get to Tyre. Have you noticed that? It says they come to Tyre to a place where Paul doesn't have significant and deep relationships with people, where Paul hasn't spent years and years doing ministry. And yet, look at what happens. There's genuine love. There's this genuine brotherhood between them when they get there. It says they get off the ship and they go looking for believers. They seek them out. And when they find them, they're invited in and welcomed in and given a place to stay. They're loved. Not because of their relationship with each other, but because of their mutual relationship with Jesus. Isn't that cool? That's what we get as a part of a church. That's what we get. Some of you I've known most of my life. Two of you I've known my whole life. I don't know where they are. My parents. Some of you I've known maybe a year, maybe even a couple of months. But because of our relationship with Jesus, we are brothers and sisters. We are family. And that's what we see here in Tyre. We see that they worshiped together. It says that they were there for seven days, so they probably worshiped together. They certainly shared their story with them and they prayed together because we see that the people, the believers in Tyre, through the Spirit are telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They know where Paul's going. They know all about it. There's been enough prayer that's gone into this that the Spirit of God has given them some idea of what's about to come and they're saying, Paul, don't go. There's this connection, there's this relationship that's there because they're followers of Jesus, because they're family through that relationship. Now we're going to get to the don't go to Jerusalem part because that seems important, right? But then Paul gets on a ship and goes anyway. We'll talk about that in a minute. But just for a minute, I want you to think about the church. I want you to look at the picture of the church here. And Paul and his friends go to leave and they all come out with them. They all leave the city with Paul and his friends, and they walk down to the beach, and they kneel in the sand, and they pray. Men, women, families, children, praying for Paul as he continues this journey. I just want you to think about what that looks like for a minute. They've known each other for seven days. They send him off the same way the believers in Ephesus sent him off. Isn't that cool? And I want you to picture what it looks like for families to kneel down in the sand, children kneeling down in the sand, praying Paul out on this journey. What does that do to Paul? And what does that do to those children who are there and are a part of that event? One of the things we really hope to do as a church is to model worship to our children. It's why we have our kids in here during part of our worship time. It's why they're here when we take communion. It's why they're here when we have someone share a testimony because we want them to see a picture of what a genuine relationship with Jesus looks like. We want want them to see and be a part of what it looks like to worship with the family of God. And that's what we're seeing here. You know, we're coming to the tail end of our study in Acts and look at the church that Luke is describing. It's all over the place. Everywhere they go, they find believers. Even if they have to seek them out, they're there, worshiping God, pursuing the mission of God, and caring for God's people, whether they know them well or not, that fellow believers are welcomed in because we love the brotherhood. We care for those who love the Lord. Wouldn't it be exciting to be a part of a church like that? 
It's no pressure. I'm just saying, wouldn't that be cool to be a part of a church like that that just worships and pursues the mission of God and just loves other believers? Just putting it out there. Just something to think about. Okay, verse 7. When we had finished, you'll notice how this is written from Luke's perspective. He's saying we. He's part of the team now. That's how he's writing it. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So they found believers there, and then they get back on the ship and they go again. Verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. I want you to look at the people here. Look at the names that you recognize. Anybody recognize a name in here that we've seen before in our study of Acts? You guys remember Philip? Yeah, I heard Philip out there. You guys remember Philip? We know Philip. When's the last time we saw Philip? Remember, he was the guy who left Jerusalem because there was some maniac persecuting the church and chasing people out of the city. Oh, that's right. It was Paul. Remember that? Paul was the one persecuting the church that caused Philip to leave Jerusalem. And then Philip goes out to the historic enemies of the Jews, to the Samaritans, and he shares the gospel and they come to Christ. Philip was the one who followed that very vague prompting of the Holy Spirit that said, just go take a walk, Philip, and then say, hey, see that guy in the chariot? Just run alongside him for a minute. What? And then he shares the gospel with the Ethiopian, the ends of the earth, He shares the gospel with him. He comes to faith. He baptizes him in a pond on the side of the road. And the last time we saw Philip, he was making his way from city to city, sharing the gospel until he came to Caesarea. And here we are 25 plus years later, and where's Philip? In Caesarea. And Philip's all grown up now. Philip's got a family. He's got a house. He's still right where the Lord left him. He's got four grown daughters Luke tells us that they're unmarried, which would indicate that they are of marriageable age. So he's got a grown family. And what is he doing in Caesarea? He's sharing the gospel like he always has. How do we know that? Well, certainly he's a big instrumental part of the church there because that's where they take Paul and he takes him in. But look at his nickname, Philip the Evangelist. That's a cool nickname. He is the evangelist. He is the one proclaiming the story of God. And here's where we find Philip. And he takes Paul in, which I think is kind of big of Philip, if you think about it. Paul, the guy who chased him out of Jerusalem, and now Philip gives him a place to stay for many days. And then who comes? Agabus comes. Anybody remember Agabus? Not quite as memorable as Philip. But if you remember back in chapter 11... When Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, there's a prophet who comes and says there's going to be a horrible famine in Judea, and they take an offering as a church, and they send Paul and Barnabas with this offering to the believers in Judea to care for the family of God. Do you know who that prophet was? It was Agabus, and here he is again. Here he is again, still proclaiming the message of God after all these years. 
still being used as a part of God's story, still active in the church and the work that God is doing? Why am I taking the time to point all of this out? While there's clearly a critical story going on for Paul here, something bad is coming and everyone keeps saying that, why are we pointing this out? I just think it's important for us to look at the church, to see how it's grown, to see who God has used to grow the church, people that are committed and faithful to the proclamation of the gospel and the care of God's people over years and years and years and have not given up. And I would just say, if you're here this morning and you're in our youth group, for example, 6th through 12th grade, you look at this example and you say, I have a lifetime ahead of me of faithful service to the Lord. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I follow him for my whole life. Not for a period of time, not to make a great story, but for my whole life. Those of you who are here this morning and you've established your career or your family or your home like Philip, it doesn't mean you get out of this. You are then still a part of what God is doing. You're not excluded from a lifetime of service to your Savior proclaiming his gospel. Those of you who are here this morning and you think, I'm in the twilight of my life, you're not done. You're not done. Look who God is using and how he's building his church. Now, it is important to focus on what's going on here, the context of our story for a moment. Paul has made the journey from Ephesus and he's almost to Jerusalem. He's about 60 miles away in Caesarea. And twice we've heard believers warn Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. In Tyre, they said, and through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go. That's pretty clear. And now Agabus shows up at Philip's house, takes Paul's belt, ties up his feet, and then ties up his own hands, which I have to think is pretty hard to do. And then he says, Paul, this is what's going to happen to the guy who owns this belt, that's you, when you get to Jerusalem. Affliction and imprisonment await you. I asked you to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the church and see that everywhere Paul goes, We see people who are faithful and committed, believers, pursuing the mission of God, worshiping God, and caring for the believers. And then to look at the people and the names that we recognize, the people who remind us of, look at people who have served the Lord faithfully for decades. And we see them show up again here in this story. And then I asked you to look at Paul. So let's look at Paul this morning. What do you do if you're Paul? Everywhere you go, people say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Not just anybody. People that through the Holy Spirit are telling you, Paul, I don't think you should go to Jerusalem. These are good people. These are people who love Paul. These are also people who love Jesus. And these are people who are attentive to the Holy Spirit. These are the kinds of people that you listen to. And when Agabus gives this warning in front of all of his friends in Philip's house, his friends are literally crying and begging him, not to go. So what do you do if you're Paul? Verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, you guys are killing me. You're breaking my heart. Everyone keeps saying, Paul, You're going to suffer, don't go. 
And Paul says, I know I'm going to suffer. I have to go. Now, why is Paul doing that? Is he just really stubborn? I've actually heard a number of arguments for how Paul is actually being disobedient to the Spirit of God in this passage because people keep telling him not to go. Does he just place a really high value on suffering and hardship? Maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you are somebody like that. You just think the hardest thing must be the godly thing. Maybe you believe that. God wants us to suffer. God is the enemy of fun, right? He's the black hole of joy. It's just not true. God is the author of joy. But Paul has a very clear understanding of what his mission is. I don't think he's being disobedient to the Spirit at all. They're all being attended to the Spirit. They're just arriving at different conclusions. Flip back a little bit with me. Chapter 19, verse 21. Or you can listen if you prefer. Just a page or so back. Chapter 19, verse 21, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul resolves in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. This is not something he just comes up with or wills himself to do, saying, this sounds hard, I think I'll go do this. In the Spirit, he wills to go to Jerusalem. And then, how strongly is Paul convicted that this is what God wants him to do? Look ahead, chapter 20, verse 22, says this, And now behold, this is Paul talking, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. I have to go. The Spirit's made that very clear to me. And I don't know what's going to happen there exactly, except that I've got a pretty good idea it's going to be bad, because in every city the Spirit testifies to me that it's going to be really hard. But my life is not what's precious to me. What's precious to me is the ministry of Jesus Christ, which is the proclamation of the gospel. That is is what's of the greatest value to me. And so that sets my priorities. And then what does Luke tell us? I have to imagine Paul gave them some of that. Back to chapter 21, verse 14. Luke tells us, And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Guess where they're they're staying? With another believer. Someone who's been a believer for a long time that's willing to take Paul in. Even though Paul is not the most popular house guest among Jews, especially in Jerusalem. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Paul finally makes it 
to Jerusalem. This has been a long journey, a lot of travel, a lot of things have happened on the way, and he comes before James and the other elders of the church, and it says he tells them everything that's happened, everything that we've read over the last 12 chapters. Paul gives them an update, probably even more than we have here recorded by Luke. One by one, Paul gives an account of everything that God has done through his ministry with an emphasis on God. Do you see that? Paul tells the story of what has happened in his ministry with God as the hero of the story. This is the work that God has done. And then James and the elders of the church give praise and glory to God, not to Paul. This is not Paul's ministry. Paul is an instrument being used by God to do his work. And so the glory goes to God. And then they said to him, verse 20, it says, When they heard it, they glorified God. And then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. James says, praise God for what he's doing. He's clearly working through your ministry, Paul, and guess what? He's working here too because we have seen thousands among the Jews who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But there's a little bit of a problem in that they've heard, Paul, that you're telling all the Jews they don't have to be Jews anymore, that they're not under the law and so they don't have to observe any of it anymore. So what are we going to do Because they're going to know that you're here, and this is going to be a problem. So James comes up with a solution for Paul. He says, verse 23, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So James and the elders of the church say, Paul, we get it. We know what you're teaching. We're cool with what you're teaching. And you can see that God's doing a work here too, but we have this problem and we need to clear it up. So here's what we're going to recommend. Because we know that you're not under the law, but we also want people to know that you still observe it and that you're not teaching people not to observe the law. Let's not ruffle feathers if we don't have to. So why don't you just go through this purification process, Paul? We've got some other guys that are going through and you can pay for them. We really feel like this would go a long way to showing that these rumors about you and these accusations aren't true at all. This has no credibility. So what does Paul do? Part of me feels like Paul is coming in here. God's been telling him for months, you're going to suffer. Jerusalem's going to be hard. It's going to be a pain. And then James says this, and you're Paul, and you're just like, bring it on. I'm I'm sure this is what they're going to be upset about, so just bring it on. I'm ready to suffer and die. (laughs) That's not what he does. Look what Paul does. He listens to their advice. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men. The next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. But the story continues, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. 
For they had previously, oh sorry, and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. So it turns out everybody was right. The churches were right. Paul was right. The Holy Spirit was right. Jerusalem was going to be bad. And James and the elders of the church tried to soften the blow a little bit and let some of this stuff blow over and it just didn't happen. Paul goes to Jerusalem and he gets beaten and imprisoned almost immediately, like within days of arriving. And he's about to be beaten to death. I don't know if you caught that. So they're trying to kill him, but they have to stop beating him when the soldiers come. They're going to beat him to death. The tribune can't even get a straight answer because the crowd is so upset. He can't even find out what they're angry about. They are just livid with anger. And so Paul is dragged away, carried away by these soldiers as the people are trying to tear him apart. They're so upset. And as he leaves, they say, away with him, which could be translated as finish him or kill him, like finish what we started. We've heard this before. We've heard this from the people in Jerusalem with Jesus. And another time, I would love to just look at these two stories, Paul's journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. As Luke records it, he he creates a very clear parallel between these two stories in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. Same thing that's shouted, kill him, get rid of him, finish him. We're entering the final stages of Paul's missionary work, the final narrative of Acts. We're entering the end of the story of Paul. And do you remember how the story of Paul started? His journey with the Lord started in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. started with him breathing threats and murder against the followers of Jesus. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples. That's where Paul started and God looked down and said, that's my guy. That's the guy I'm going to use to change the world. I like his tenacious spirit. And I'm going to use him and I'm going to change him and I'm going to bring people to myself through him. Do you remember what he tells Ananias? He tells Ananias to go to Paul and heal him and Ananias is like, uh-uh. Do you know who this guy is? Do you know what he's doing? Paul's like, uh, God's like, yeah, I've got a good idea. And I'm going to use him. And here's what he said. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
That's what God said about him about 25 years ago. And now look where Paul is and look what's going on. Paul has carried the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. He's carried the name of Jesus to the children of Israel. And now he's going to carry the name of Jesus before kings and rulers. And God's going to say, Paul, you're not going to believe the audience I'm going to give you next. You are not going to believe who you get to share the gospel in front of after this. You just wait and see what I'm going to do through you and who I'm going to reach through you. There's so many things that we can take from a passage like this, but we said we wanted to focus on three things. The church, the people, and Paul. Look at what God is building through the book of Acts. God's church is everywhere. Look how it's grown. Look at the people who have dedicated their life to God, who worship him, who pursue his mission and care for his believers. And then look at who God is doing it through. Look at the people that God is building his church through people who are faithful to serve the Lord and proclaim the gospel for years and years and years of their life. They have not forgotten him. They haven't made excuses for not following him. They're just faithful to what God has put before him. And then look at Paul, who's been given a very specific mission a very difficult mission by God. And he is so committed to that mission that he will stop at nothing to see it through. Nothing's going to stop me, not even godly people weeping and asking me not to do it. I will stop at nothing. Do you know why? Because Paul's very life cries out that the most precious thing in the world to him is the gospel in the name of Jesus. Because God's church and God's people and Paul Understand the truth of the gospel, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son so that we would not have to suffer the consequences of our own sin, so that we would not have to live separated from God forever, but that we would be invited in to his family, adopted as his children, and invited to live with him in glory forever. That's amazing. And they understand that. Because God's church and God's people and Paul Understand that without that truth, they are lost and they are hopeless. They have nothing else to live for. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, apart from his death and resurrection, there's no hope. And they get that. So I feel like the question for us as the church and as the followers of Jesus would be this. Is the gospel that precious to me? Is the gospel that precious to me that I would do what Philip did or what Agabus did or what Paul did? When they tell the story of your life or when they tell the story of these people or when they tell the story of our church, will they tell the story of a group of people for whom the gospel was the most precious thing above everything else? Will they say that our lives cried out that the gospel was the most important thing in the world to us. You have your connection card this morning, and I would invite you to take that out this morning. Joe already encouraged you to fill that out, but I just want to ask you for a response. You don't have to, but we're going to have a time of worship now. We're going to have a time to praise God for what he's done and revel in the fact that we are saved and his children. And here's the question that I would ask, and I just ask if you'd be willing to respond to it this morning on that card. Is there anything in my life that's more precious to me than the gospel? 
Is there anything in my life that is more precious than my Jesus, my Savior? Will I follow Jesus no matter the cost, no matter what he asks me? We have to ask ourselves that question very carefully because what if he asks us to do what he asked Paul to do? Is there anything in my life that's more precious to me than Jesus? Is there something God is asking you to give for the sake of the gospel that you're unwilling to give? Your time, your resources, your, your whole heart, whatever it is, your commitment, your faithfulness to him? Is there something that God is asking you to give up for the sake of the gospel? Your plans, your comfort, your lifestyle, your sin. Maybe God is just asking you to give up and give your life to Jesus. Maybe you need to surrender your life to him this morning. And the question is, are you willing to do that? Do you understand that he is the most precious thing in the world? I know it sounds really glamorous to be a follower of Jesus after what we just read. Hey, yeah, sign me up for that, for what Paul's going through. That sounds great. Maybe God will ask you to suffer. Maybe God will ask you to endure some really hard things. That may be true. That may happen. We don't follow because it's glamorous, and we don't follow because it's easy. We follow Jesus because we understand that without him we're lost, because we understand that without him we have nothing. You remember what his disciples said to him? We'll close with this. Do you remember what his disciples said when Jesus said, hey, you want to go too? Jesus said some really hard things and everyone walks away because they're like, this guy's crazy. And he says, do you guys want to go too? And they say, where else will we go? Where else can we go? You hold the keys to eternal life. We have nowhere else to turn. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you're an amazing God and you have an incredible story and we want to be faithful to proclaim it. And as your followers, we want to believe and understand and live as if there is nothing more valuable to us than you, but you know by looking at our lives that that is not always true. That is maybe rarely true of us. Would you do a work in our hearts, even this morning, Lord, and allow us to hold on to you as the thing that is most precious, and even as we sing to you now, Lord, would you allow us to sing with conviction, And if we can't, Lord, would you help us to fall before you and ask you to stir in our hearts and to do a work. Pray this in your name. Amen.